everybody. Welcome to Ask a Catholic Dude. Name is Nick and I am that Catholic Dude, of course. Taking any questions, calls, comments, what have you on the Catholic Church, tradition, scripture, and anything else having to do with Catholicism, feel free to call in. Thanks for tuning in on Anchor FM or iTunes or whatever app you are currently listening to. This podcast is, of course, recorded in Anchor. And, uh, yeah, thanks for tuning in. Last time... We had quite a few random people on there from the awesome, awesome second annual liturgical conference. It was a great time. Great time was had by all. And it was uh, just really cool to be at uh, the Mundelein Seminary at St. Uh, St. Mary Lakes up in Mundelein, Illinois. Pretty much the farthest outreaches of the uh, Chicago Archdiocese in Northern Illinois, and I mean it, it was just it was just awesome being there. the 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 chapel there was great. Um, the food was great. The liturgy was great. Of course, that's one of the main highlights was the sacred liturgy. It it was just a a conference for you know young people. There must have been about a hundred people there, and over the weekend we just got to hang out and geek out about our Lord, um, so to speak, you know, it was, it was just great. Um, one of the highlights for me was being able to communally pray morning prayer lauds. Um, I've often said the divine office, which is the liturgy of the hours, uh, by myself. It's and what liturgy of the hours is like when people talk about liturgy, you know, most people are thinking, oh, you know, a mass or divine liturgy, whatever. No, it's it's way more than that. Um, that that's, that's the most important aspect, of course, to be sure, the sacrifice of the mass. But um, to be able to engage in prayer throughout the day, that's what Liturgy of the Hours is. It, it, it's, gr- it's a great feeling to know that there's just um, the Catholics the world over can join in together you know, or be apart from each other, like somebody in Japan and someone in Africa, someone in the U.S., and they're praying the same prayers. You know, that's it, it shows really how we're united as the body of Christ with these liturgical actions. And during the seminars and whatnot, you know, we got to learn a lot more about how liturgy comes through in architecture and in music, um, and, and especially in music. I noticed this during lauds and vespers. You know, we had solemn vespers, and it was great. And I just remember getting goosebumps when we all started praying the Pater Noster, the Our Father in Latin. I mean, everybody was chanting it beautifully, and oh my gosh, it was just, it was great, you know, singing everything in the liturgy. And that, that even extended to Mass. I mean, one of the coolest things that, that I learned during this is this whole experience was that um, you don't have to always uh just just talk during mass i guess and by talk i mean like when 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 the priest asks for a response from the congregation you know we're we usually just say oh lord hear our prayer or thanks be to god and we say it like that but like we're supposed to sing everything like you know like when when somebody comes up and says like a reading from the book of prophet isaiah like we're supposed to chant that and like they had people come up there like the people that were doing the readings like the one nun that came up there she's like oh reading from the book of the prophet isaiah and then she went in the reading and at the end she chants again she says thanks be to god or the word of the lord and we all answer thanks be to god you know it's like little things like that which is just cool 
Um, it, it, you don't really get to experience it too many parishes across the U.S. Um, and then, you know, singing the Our Father, um, we were able to uh, chant the Creed in Latin and the Gloria and Agnus Dei, the Santus. Uh, we, we said all the antiphons, you know, instead of just doing like random hymns, like we were able to pray the prayers that we're supposed to pray during Mass. That's the entrance antiphon, offertory, communion, uh, the memorial acclamation. It's like we're, we, you know, we, we chanted it the way it's supposed to. We said the prayers that we're supposed to say, and it just showed me how Scripture just permeates throughout the Mass, how the you know, these prayers that often get overlooked during most Sundays at most parishes here in the U.S., the, the prayers, how they, they, they fit in together, how they connect and how they connect into the liturgy and the readings. And it was just, wow, it was awesome. Uh, you know, confession was available too. We had adoration. Um, and because luckily there were several priests, several young priests in attendance, you know, there was plenty on hand to do confessions and, and adoration. Like, I mean, there, there was no problem getting a priest at all. So it was just, it was a great time. Um, got to spend the two nights with my brother in the same room. Uh, we haven't done that. haven't shared a room like that in 11 years. So that was interesting. Um, but it, it was a fruitful conference. It was great to worship with my fellow young Catholics. Uh, great time was had by all. And the, and, the, and the talks were fantastic. And what I got here for you guys is a couple of interviews with the keynote speakers. Uh, the first one I'm going to put here is Dr. Dennis McNamara. Uh, Dr. Dennis McNamara is just, he's a fun guy. He has a podcast up at the, uh, uh, for, for the Liturgical Institute, it's called the Liturgy Guys podcast. Just look for it on iTunes and talk about all things having to do with the sacred liturgy. It's it's really awesome. And uh, he's the associate director and an associate pastor at the or pastor, an associate professor at the Liturgical Institute of Mundelein Seminary up in the Archdiocese. And uh, he's written some great books. And uh, look up his videos online. He talks a lot about uh, architectural history. He has a PhD in that subject and he while he didn't talk about this at the conference I wanted to get his opinion on this because a lot of people don't realize that there's like a theology of architecture if there's a reason to how we do things so I'm going to cue up this interview that we had with Dr. McNamara it's great stuff please uh let me know any of your thoughts, or maybe if you have any further questions, you know, we could maybe talk to Dr. McNamara again, or hopefully now that I've gotten to pick his brain a little bit, I, I feel like I know a little bit more um, regarding the topic of uh, theology and architecture. Um, and then also stay tuned, guys, in the coming days, hopefully in a day or two, I'll also have an interview up that I had with Bishop Joseph Perry, who also gave a, uh, a great great uh, address on uh, history of the sacred liturgy and he's the uh, one of the auxiliary bishops of uh, the archdiocese of chicago so uh, stay tuned for that because that's uh, going to be pretty awesome too but in the meantime 
we have here Dr. Dennis McNamara from the Liturgical Institute and from that Liturgy Guys podcast. So please enjoy. I'm here today with Dr. Dennis McNamara from the Liturgical Institute. He has a PhD in architectural history uh, and is also uh, a member of the Society of Architectural Historians. Uh, thanks a lot for talking with me today, Dr. Dr. Dennis. Happy to be here. Um, so, you know, real briefly, maybe if you could tell us a little bit about you know, how your love for church architecture came about. Um, you know, because as, as we mentioned, you know, you had the PhD in architectural history, and, you know, a lot of people don't even think to put, you know, uh, you know, architecture and theology together. So what is it about it that drew you into this particular field of interest? Well, I always loved architecture. When I was a kid, my father had grown up in New York City, and his, my grandparents still lived in his church, near his church that he grew up in, a beautiful church called St. Vincent Ferrer. So I used to visit that a lot as a child for Mass, and I knew that it was much nicer than the one I went to in the suburbs. I didn't know why, but I used to, even as a little kid, I used to beg my mother, can we go to Grandma's church? <laughs> it's nicer than ours. <laughs> so I guess it was the Holy Spirit or some kind of seed planted in there early on. Um, and, but I never really thought I'd be doing anything with theology. I just thought architectural history is the history of architecture. But then when I came to the Liturgical Institute, I realized that there's a deep theology of architecture because it's very scriptural. You know, Jesus' body is compared to the temple, and, uh, you know, in the Pauline letters, uh, the Christians are called living stones in the temple of God. So buildings are made of stones, but then they form this image of Christ. Um, and just as people who are living stones form the image of Christ's body. And so the, the church building is an analogy for Christ's own body. It's an analogy for the church, which is why the building and the people have the same name. And the church actually says that specifically, that the church signifies the, the mystical body of Christ. The church building signifies the mystical body. Right, that's awesome. Um, now, you know, many people today... It's, they seem to think that, you know, when they w- go to these churches like your grandmother's, you know, they walk in there, um, you know, they, they're, they're uh, taken away by the beauty of it. But then we have those, you know, that were even built just in the last century. People think, oh, this is way too ostentatious. This is way too much. Uh, you know, they, they, they think that maybe God would be more pleased with something simple. Uh, how do you respond to those that are kind of put off by churches that are built in traditional style thinking it's too much? Well, too much is only too much if it's more than it needs, right? So you have to say, what a thing, in the Thomistic system of beauty, a thing is beautiful when it reveals what it is at the level of its own nature. It's called its ontological reality. Ontology is the study of being or the nature of things. So a church, if you think of it as a meeting house, if that's your operative ontology, then you'll say a fancy one is too fancy. If you say a church is an image of the glorified mystical body of Christ that has many members brought to the glory that, they ha- that Christ's body had after the resurrection, and that that mystical body includes the angels and the saints Mm -hmm. and all of creation and even the souls in purgatory and then us in that room and the trinity and that's what you're trying to express, then that's not excess. That's actually deficient if it doesn't have those things. So simplicity in in the way of thinking is, uh, is brought, a thing is called simple when it's brought to the fewest number of divisions that it can have. So the trinity has to be a three. It can't be a two because then it'd be, it'd be deficient. So you can't divide the trinity any, any further. Mm-hmm. A church building has to have everything it needs to have and no more. If it has more than it needs, then it is excessive. So what Vatican II says is a church building should have noble beauty rather than mere sumptuous display. The Latin is uh, sumptuositatem, meram sumptuositatem. And sumptuousness comes from the Latin verb uh, sumere, which means to spend. So it should have a noble beauty, the beauty that it needs to have to be what it is, rather than mere spending. And so if a, you know, if a wealthy parish just says, oh, yeah, look how much money we can spend, that's not right. However, if a parish spends a lot of money building a beautiful church, 
they're actually doing what they ought to do rather than less that they ought to do. I see what you're saying. It, it makes sense. And uh, you know what? I, I kind of want to bounce off of something you, ju you said uh, you just said about like a meeting house. Like if, if some of these people are seeing it as a meeting house. Like I've always been curious about we see a lot of churches that are built within the last you know, 30, 40 years. Some of them are kind of following um, I guess for lack of a better term, kind of like that mega church model. And I'm curious to know what your opinion on opinion is on buildings that church buildings that kind of doubles parish halls you know they have a lounge area office space attached right there right when you walk in the main doors um you know they're located in the same building is is this just the church you know getting updated in the 21st century or is there something wrong with combining all these features into a house of worship well you can have lots of program in a parish complex right you can have your hall for the saint patrick's day dances and you have the classrooms and all that we've always had that mm -hmm. The problem is that the church was the church, and the supportive things were the supportive things. If you say the church and the supportive things are the same, then you're flattening out the high theology of the church. And really what it is is a, is a temple theology. So in the Temple of Solomon had three parts, really. There was a porch, there was a big room, and then there was the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. And when you read the descriptions in Scripture, the, the big room had... Uh, cedar panels carved with angels and trees and stars painted on the ceiling. And essentially, it was an image of the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Humanity's invited back into the Garden of the New Earth in the rendition in art and architecture. And then the, the Holy of Holies, which is now the sanctuary of our church, was the image of heavens, where God dwelled. God sat on the, the throne of the Ark of the Covenant. And so the veil, which is the great curtain between the heaven and earth, yeah. was the separation between heaven and earth, and it was torn top to bottom when Christ died on the cross, meaning heaven and earth have access. But what it really means is that the church building is a microcosmic artistic representation of heaven and earth united at the end of time. So earth has fallen now, yeah. and heaven has not fallen, of course, but heaven and earth are separated to some degree. At the end of time, the wedding feast of the Lamb, the reason it's called a wedding is because God and humanity will be so intimately united as to become one. We don't experience that yet, but when you see paintings of angels and saints, what you're anticipating is your own future in heaven. And that's a theological task that the job that is in part of the job of the church to do. And if you don't do it, then you're not encountering the beings who are also at worship, because they're singing holy, holy, holy too, the angels and the saints, not just us. And it's a deep sacramental understanding of the world that Catholics have, and we're blessed to have, and it applies to art and architecture as well. Wow, yeah, that's fascinating, because you're right, because it's like we're singing with them, we're, you know, because they make up, you know, we all make up the body of Christ, even though we're in heaven, or they're in heaven, and we're here, and hopefully we'll be with them one day. Right, the little introductory prayer right before the Sanctus says, we join our voices with the angels and saints as we say, Sanctus, Sanctus, right. Sanctus, right? right? So there's all these, these reminders that they're with us, and that makes up the whole body. The earthly part of the body is real, but it's only one part of it, and if you don't encounter the rest of it through artistic means, then you don't perceive it. That's awesome. It's awesome to think of it that <laughs> way. Um, and I kind of want to switch gears just, just like a little bit to, to not new churches, but to those churches that, you know, from years past and have kind of been renovated in a way. You know, there's been times that I've walked into a church and, you know, I, I can tell that it's been beautifully crafted. There's like, you know, there's a real... Uh, re sacramental reality there, um, but then I, I can tell where there's inconsistencies, like where an altar rail used to be, or where there's a big blank spot, you know, in the sanctuary, I could tell where the, the high altar used to be. Um, what was it about, you know, that era following, you know, the council, you know, the 1970s and 80s, what was it about that era that, that saw a lot of this recovation, um, as I hear it called sometimes, you know, why did this happen on such a large scale, you know, particularly here in the United States? 
Yeah, it, it's a great iconoclastic period in the church, certainly. Um, you know, the Victorian altars that so many people love now with the uh, tall crockets of marble and they call the wedding cake altars, um, <laughs> they were, those, were could see, those were seen as kind of insufficient even before Vatican II, as early as the 1920s and 30s, because what they said is the altar should be freestanding. The rubric said the altar should be freestanding, even if the priests were facing east or orientum. And that they built a baldacchino over it, and you could get all the way around the altar. You could incense all the way around mm -hmm. it. Like you, if you see St. Peter's in Rome, and you know, yeah. that's how they do it. That was considered the ideal altar. If you had this big reredos or the big high altar piece back there, the altar was sort of buried under it. You couldn't get around it, and they said the altar was lost under all this stuff. So <laughs> some of the early renovations were already taking down the, the old high altars, building a baldacchino, which is a canopy on four columns around the altar, and then putting the altar under it. And that was considered the appropriate response of the liturgical movement that eventually became Vatican II. I see. But what happened after the council was a radical reorientation or re-ontologization, <laughs> redefinition <laughs> of the church as the meeting house. Mm -hmm. And there's no longer a sacred um, ceremony, but it was compared to the meal of the family, uh, the living room of God, or the dining room of God. And Would you turn your back on your guests if you were the host of a dinner? So that's not really part of Catholic understanding of the nature of the liturgy, which is always a sacrificial meal in a ritual form, and a ritual in public form. But somehow the domestic and intimate overwhelmed the ritual and public, and nobody's living room has marble and big slabs of marble for a table. And So you see, what, they, what do they do? They paint the walls beige like their houses. They put wood floors in like their houses. They make the altar like a table like their houses. They have houseplants like their houses. I never thought of it like that. But so you're... the domestic <laughs> model overwhelmed the public model at that time. And, and the theological model of, of the temple got um, sort of demolished uh, too. And wow. so if that's what your model is, then you get rid of all that churchy public stuff and you paint it beige. <laughs> you know what, it, it seems like it kind of leads into my next question because you had mentioned in your talk today a little bit about, uh, a little bit about Mediator Day from Pope Pius XII. And I was kind of curious if, you know, th this, this home model or whatnot, was this kind of that you know, because they wanted to go back to what the early church was like, or what they thought the early church was like. Is this kind of that that antiquarianism, that archaeologism that Pope Pius warned warned against when we talk about these ugly churches, I guess, or these ugly renovations? I think it was Pius XII really warned against an uncritical antiquarian restorationism, as if you know the Holy Spirit stopped inspiring the church in the 5th century and everything after that was not from the Holy Spirit. There's plenty of things that you know Thomas Aquinas did and said that we could still use even if they don't come from the, you know, the 3rd century. Mm -hmm. So uh, basically you have to assess it theologically. Is this appropriate and pastorally best for our time and place? Is it true to the nature of the liturgy or not? So he specifically forbade the use of... Um, table form altars under the account that they were like the tables of the early church. Mm. He warned that people were not using black vestments anymore, and he said they should. Yeah. He said that crosses that didn't show the, the wounds of Jesus should not be used. All these things that became common after the council were all the things he warned against doing. And he was really a prophet uh, in that way. But, you know, this notion that people would say, well, the Acts of the Apostles says the apostles broke bread in their homes. And so people argued that the liturgy is basically a domestic meal. It's as a domestic character, and that's what really did it in. Instead of a public ritual character that comes out of the temple tradition, they had the meal character, which comes out of the domestic tradition, and also the Protestant post-Reformation tradition. It wasn't really a Catholic 
thing, but somehow Catholics bought into that at that time. Right, right. It's uh, just unfortunate, but like you said, Pope Pius was like a prophetic voice. That's an interesting way to think of it. Um, and this will be my last question for you, Doctor. Um, you've, I've, I've seen many of your talks, you know, they're on YouTube or through your Liturgy Guys podcast, and you've often mentioned, you know, in these that there is such a thing as the concept of architectural theology, um, and that churches themselves are a sacramental building. Right. This might be like a broad kind of question for you, but you know, for some of those who never would have thought of putting architecture and theology together in the same sentence, what do you mean to say by using such terms? Well, I'm I was trying to rescue the idea that a building is a theologically neutral, a church is a theologically neutral thing. You would say the text you say at Mass are theological words. They're to God, they're from God, they're about God, they reveal God to you. The actions you have are the theology in ritual form, so the, the ritual form of uh, theology. And then you can talk about the lex orandi, the law of prayer, the mm -hmm. lex credendi, the law of belief, but you can also speak of the law of building, the lex edificandi. So if you believe that God is revealing himself to you uh, through sign and symbol, and that primary way that's done visually is through the sacred image, the icon, then there's a law of theology for making icons. And the Eastern tradition has this you know, very firmly developed oh, yeah. over many centuries. Uh, in the West, we didn't really get that. In fact, one of the Eastern complaints about the Western church is that we don't have an, a positive theology of sacred art. We have a lot of warnings of what you shouldn't do, like don't have too many images, don't have things that duplicate or multiply. But we don't have any positive theology of what art is, what architecture is. And so I've learned a lot from the Eastern tradition. And they say the church building is an image of the heavenly Jerusalem. It's described in the book of Revelation in different ways. And so our job is to bring that reality into our own time the same way an icon brings the image of a saint into our own time and place. And so every architectural decision in church is a theological decision. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Doctor. And it was a pleasure speaking with you about this. And uh, I'll direct people to please go to the Liturgy Guys podcast and please listen to, uh, to more from the doctor. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Can I plug my book? Yes. Okay, well, <laughs> please. A number of years ago, I wrote a book called Catholic Church Architecture and the Spirit of the Liturgy. And it was inspired by Cardinal Ratzinger, but really goes through chapter by chapter the temple inheritance, the synagogue inheritance, what columns mean, what, uh, how you encounter heaven in, in a church building, why you have architectural theology. And first, the first chapter is called Architectural Theology. So uh, I hate to be plugging myself, but I'd be sorry if I didn't. So. <laughs> no, please, please do. That's great. Please, everybody, please check that out. Again, thank you so much, Doctor, and Thanks. I'll talk to you soon. Okay.